This is Matt Oxley with the Great Deconstruction Podcast. Today, uh, you get to hear Cade detail uh, his experience of deconstruction and eventually deconversion. Now, uh, this was a really interesting conversation. I know Lars from a couple Facebook groups, and he's been on the same podcast I've been on. He, he was on Peaceful uh, Atheist a while back. And uh, Lars is, is an interesting guy. He's uh, a big nerd like myself, which I've enjoyed getting to know him uh, through the group and even more so through this conversation. I'm really happy with the way it turned out, especially since he was my first guest. Um, I should make it clear that the goal of this show is not to bring anyone into the loss of their faith at all uh i it's never been important to me whether or not you deconverted or just changed the way you view your faith Uh, my goals have always been to at the very least bring you into a place where it's okay to not be certain so I don't want you to think that the tone of this show will be always atheistic, though Lars and I are very similar positions. Um, I consider myself an agnostic atheist, and I think he's probably in the same boat. Of course, we didn't actually discuss that in the conversation, but from what I can tell, that seems about, about right. Um, but yeah, we're not trying to at all uh, challenge what you believe or why you believe it the goal is to make it okay to ask those questions the ones that are burning in the back of your mind those things are important one of the things that uh, so very difficult to let go of whenever you're going through deconstruction is the sense of certainty that is very common Um, it's hard to let go of knowing the truth and that's what I believed and that's what Lars believed that he knew the truth but many people and many others deny it have deep questions that burn that are difficult to actually confront and I should be here to tell you that it doesn't have to be frightening you're not necessarily turning your back on God, Jesus, or any of those concepts because you have doubts. Uh, doubt can be holy and doubt can be secular. Uh, it is a human experience and it's, it's a very real experience that many of us deal with every day. Um, and I think it's one of those things that Maybe it comes with age. Maybe it comes with just experience. I don't know for sure. Uh, I think I think certainty is something we get really comfortable in, and I think it's important that we get really uncom- uh, really uh, much more comfortable, rather, with the concept of not being so certain, of not knowing all the answers. 
and that not only helps us understand our place in the universe, but it helps us understand our faith in a much different way. And so I hope that I hope that you get something out of this. I hope you don't feel like anybody's preaching atheism to you. Of course, no one is. Um, we're just talking about our experiences, where we are today, what we're doing today. Uh, and that's that's uh, as human and beautiful and in some cases as divine as anything else is to have questions, to face them, to confront them, and uh, come to different conclusions or sometimes no conclusions you know sometimes we just have to throw our hands up in the air and say i don't know and uh yeah so i hope you enjoyed this conversation i'm going to make this the first episode and then i think the next episode is going to be be me talking about my own deconstruction which was some time ago and uh i think you'll you'll get a lot out of it maybe i hope yeah, I'm excited to, to have these conversations and to continue these conversations. If you'd like to support this show, you can go to revoxley, R-E-V-O-X-L-E-Y, dot substack, dot com. You can become a contributor. You can just subscribe for free, whatever you want to do. No pressure. Uh, you can also subscribe to the podcast and my writing and things like that. You can also read my own story which is posted. Um, yeah, I, I hope that you find enlightenment here, and I hope that you find uh, grace here. I hope that you find comfort here, and that you learn that it is quite okay, quite normal, to have questions. And at some point in your life, it's okay to even deal with those questions, to really seek them out. And I think that's what Lars and I have both done and will probably continue to do for most of our lives. So I um, hope you enjoy it. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can learn how to do so at revoxley.substack.com as well. Hello, everybody. This is Matt with my friend Lars Cade, uh, who is our very first guest on the Great Deconstruction Podcast. Ooh. And uh, first, we want to welcome you and thank you for joining. Uh, and thank you for being so eager to share your story. That's really cool of you. Um, I'll start by giving you an opportunity to kind of introduce yourself and, you know, 
tell us who you are and what you want us to know about yourself. Uh, sure. My name is Lars. I currently live in North Carolina with my wife and three kids. Uh, I grew up as a fundamentalist Christian in the Plymouth Brethren sect and eventually found my way out of that through a story that I think we're going to be getting into today, so I won't have to spoil too much. Uh, the <laughs> yeah. best part of it is that uh, my wife and kids came out along with me, and we've been living very happily irreligious for the last year and a half. Very cool. So this is pretty recent then. Uh, I didn't realize that it was quite so well, new. Yes and no. Uh, we'll, we'll get into it. Don't worry. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I've actually created kind of a five questions that I want to ask everybody. And eventually, I guess I'll refine that into something a little, a little less formal. But um, the first is, how would you describe your beliefs prior to deconstruction? And this can be religious, political, whatever, whatever things were important to you that you held uh, dear at the time. Well, since this podcast is probably not meant more than an hour, I can't really go into all of them. But yeah. uh, the yeah. <laughs> the basics were that um, there is a God, this God is revealed in the Bible, and uh, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ as recorded in the canonical Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that uh, all humans have sinned before God, meaning they have broken God's commands or desires, and are thus deserving of condemnation. Generally, that referred to an eternal conscious torment in hell, although the details were always a bit wishy-washy. Um, yep. The only way to escape said hell was to place one's full faith and trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ, his death, life, and resurrection as the um, assurance of our salvation and eventual resurrection as well to uh, eventually spend the rest of eternity with God and with Jesus who is also God in heaven. Um, <laughs> the, that's the basics of Christian, the Christian gospel, uh, specifically the more uh, Western influenced, somewhat Calvinist influenced with the idea of uh, what's sometimes known as um, total depravity, that everyone is uh, completely guilty before God and that God is the perfect arbiter and representative of moral goodness. Yeah, and not only that, you're born that way. Born or you're committed. Born uh, I, I, in in my okay. particular sect, uh, they kind of had this idea of an age of innocence. Uh, they were never very clear on when that age was up, but it was generally thought that once someone could themselves articulate ideas of what they thought were right and wrong, then that innocence had passed, and they were. It was then up to them to choose the right. And as soon as you failed once, as it says in the uh, Epistle of James. Uh, whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles at one point is guilty of it all. So do, if uh, you tell one lie, then you are just as condemned to hell as the person who committed mass murder. Right. Okay. Well, that's not too far from where I grew up. Uh, you know, I kind of came from a Baptist Pentecostal background. I'm not super familiar with the Plymouth Brethren, but um, I kind of I kind of get it. Did you at any point... I, you? you have uh, a way of talking and, and approaching this topic that reminds me a lot of myself, especially a, a number of years ago, that tells me that at some point you were very interested in apolog apologetics. 
that's actually an interesting question. Um, my primary interest has always been in the truth. I am a curious person right. by nature. Uh, my parents often tell the story of when I had just learned to walk, I took a magnet around the house and tried it on many different things. And after that, I never tried a magnet on anything that wasn't metal. I'd done an experiment, hypothesized about it, and formed a conclusion without even being able to talk. So yeah. <laughs> um, clearly, this is, this is something that has been very important to me from the get-go. And um, my parents chose to homeschool me, both because we moved around a lot as missionaries, because we were in, when we settled down, we ended up in a place where the local school district was not of very high quality, and primarily because they wanted to make sure that I was presented with what they saw as the truth, uh, with a capital T, if you will. Mm. Um, yeah. This also, of course, as you mentioned earlier, involved politics. Um, my parents very much fall on the conservative end of the political spectrum. However, to their great credit, they are very consistent with their ideas about morality and did not in any way support Donald Trump. Even if they liked his policies, they despised his person and did not vote for him. So um, I am okay. always, I, I will forever admire them for that. Uh, despite the great peer pressure that they faced to vote for him, they didn't do it. Um, and so I, I want to make it clear to anyone listening that while obviously I have many disagreements with them now and feel like some of their choices negatively impacted me, they are people of consistency and character and I don't want you to think otherwise of them. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a, a rare thing sometimes. Um, I find that a lot of people who claim any level of Christian faith, and most people I would consider to be what I would call a nominal Christian, it's kind of just what you're born into. You don't really study, you don't really try to understand. And that's kind of the opposite of me. I, I wanted to know the truth exactly what was the truth um and i was seeking it from what i remember from like the age of 10 or so i was really really interested in nailing down what thousands of years of theologians have not been able to do because you know i can um and that's you know nail down the truth about god right um or, or the bible or you know to to come to a an appropriate understanding of those things. Mm -hmm. um, if, if I can go on a little bit ahead. more about, um, about curiosity yeah. and search for the truth, despite that being a, if not the primary motivator throughout my life, I didn't ever actually get into apologetics uh, as it's commonly understood. Now the idea of a formal set of arguments and evidence that one could muster to show the truth of their faith. And probably had I actually done so, I probably would have left the faith much sooner because I would have recognized that these were yeah. not very good arguments. Um, instead, I right. was fed a lot of things, most especially young earth creationism. This was sort of held up as the real evidence that all this was true. Uh, setting aside the bad logic of if one part is true, then all of it is true. It was presented that the evidence actually supports this view of the earth and the first place that this was ever recorded is the Bible. Therefore, we can trust the Bible and everything else that it says. Again, had I actually learned philosophy and what passes for modern apologetics, I probably would have figured out much sooner that this doesn't make any sense, just from a strictly philosophical standpoint, let alone an evidential one. Um, but I have a prodigious capacity for memory. Uh, at the age of five, I memorized the entirety of the Epistle of Romans, chapter 12, and recited it in front of the congregation that we were attending at the time. Uh, I went entirely through the Awana Children's Program. Uh, it's a... Uh, Christian fundamentalist evangelical 
program sort of modeled after the scouts uh, in which scripture or Bible memorization specifically is really emphasized as well as memorizing a bunch of other societal rules like how to handle your country's flag um, and sometimes even just practical skills like not tying, although they've moved away from the practical skills and even more into the doctrine in more recent times. Yeah, I remember I did some Awana myself, so I do remember yeah. that. And it was very similar to the scouts at the time. Yeah. So, yeah, it was. I I was setting myself up for being able to work things out later in life, but really mostly it was just memorization of knowledge all the way through from, from kindergarten all the way through high school. Um, the idea of a systematic theology was something that I wasn't really introduced to. It was just more ad hoc. It was presented as sort of systematic, like all oh, this fits together, but we never actually got into the details of how it supposedly fits together. And, you know, little childhood and teenage me did notice times when things didn't line up. And we can get into those more if you want. Uh, I'm sure anyone who's studied Christianity in any depth probably with the next yeah, question, can probably yeah. identify some of those right off the bat. Yeah, so I'll, I'll go ahead and go with the next question. Though, what kickstarted your? I, you can deconstruction is a term that can be kind of replaced with quite a few terms, and I I used to just call it doubt, the doubt. Um, but you know, what kickstarted that for you? Uh, again, it's a complicated question. There's a simple answer and a more complex answer. The simplest answer yep. is. Uh, around the age of 30, my oldest brother, who's a, about three years younger than I am, but a little ahead of me on the doubting phase, shared an article uh, entitled uh, Top 10 Signs You Don't Understand Evolution at All uh, on a now defunct uh, blog called God of Evolution by a Christian who wanted to help other Christians come to terms with the fact of biological evolution. I'd always had a big interest in scientific matters, but also, as mentioned before, been overridden with young earth creationism. So anytime I read anything about ages of the earth beyond 10,000 years, anytime I read anything about evolution or relatedness, I just mentally censored those and absorbed everything else. But I didn't forget it. As mentioned before, I have a great memory. And eventually all these little facts here and there that I wasn't even trying to learn about. In fact, I would say I probably actively avoided learning about evolution. All these things here and there that I learned about eventually coalesced into my mind. And I realized if I click on this link, I will have to acknowledge that I do, in fact, understand evolution. And what's more, that I know that it's true. But I did it anyway. It was probably one of the scariest things I've ever done. I know, clicking on a link, it, a, a, a great leap of non-faith, if you will. But that's what it was. I, I clicked on it. I read it. And sure enough, I could tick off every single one of those 10 things as something that I actually did understand. And it made me realize in almost overnight that, yeah, I actually understand evolution decently well. I know it's true. And that really, that had been the only thing that had been keeping me actively believing that there was a God. Um, I didn't realize that until just then. And looking back, I can see probably at least 10 years before that. No, even more, uh, probably 15 years before that. Um, there had been little things here and there that hadn't added up that contradicted the obviously the young earth creationist narrative but more generally the christian narrative about the state of humanity that all atheists are miserable baby eating puppy kicking uh sinners who want to see the world burn well obviously that isn't true i got to know some of them they were good friends they were in fact 
more interesting and fun people to be around than many of the Christians I knew. Um, that the Bible is totally true in everything that it says without contradiction. Well, I knew that wasn't really true, even if I repeated it, because even as a kid, I'd read the entire Bible many times. Yes, I'm, I'm a big nerd. Um, and yeah. um, <laughs> you and me both, yeah. but <laughs> and, and you know, I noticed various contradictions. The first one I can recall specifically. <laughs> I know this is weird, but in the book of Ezekiel, he describes a vision where he says he sees the same things two different times, but when he describes them both different times, they don't have the same description. <laughs> and it's a minor right. thing and not really a matter of doctrine, but I recognize that as a contradiction and one for which there was no obvious answer. And, you know, again, these things just piled up. And if you are have interacted with Mormons at all, especially foreign Mormons, they will tell you often about their mental shelf where they put their doubts and just keep going on with their lives. And I, I like that analogy. It works well for how I experience things. I would have these doubts. I would remind myself, nope, this is all true. The Bible is true. The plan of salvation is true. I'm going to heaven, even though I don't really like the idea of heaven, but okay, it's better than hell. Um, and so I would just put these things in the, on the shelf and realizing evolution is true. That's what broke the shelf for me. Um, Gotcha. Uh, if you want to hear me explain a bit more about how we know evolution is true, I've uh, guessed it on another podcast that we can link here and we can talk about that more. Okay. That'd be good. Yeah, I know you're pretty well well read. I, I don't know if we probably read you, – you coined a term that I really like. I think it was uh, rage yes. learning. Um, and I heard you talk about that. And I talk, talk just a moment about that. I experienced it too, uh, in a big way, but I was also kind of always doing that in a way mm -hmm. because I was always trying to understand and do apologetic work and things like that. But your, um, coining of that term is kind of on the nose for what happens in this process for, at least for me and many others. Yeah. I, I describe it as the curiosity and desire to learn born out of a recognition that this knowledge was formerly denied or inaccessible to you. So mm -hmm. all my life I'd been denied things like evolution, sex ed, real history, even church history and biblical history. I had not actually learned right. about these things because let's face it, if you learn about these things, they tend to contradict the Christian narrative about the world and about history. And so I then have spent, I mean, I still learn about it all the time that I can. I even just ordered a book called Evolution, Making Sense of Life, because I want to read through it and make sure I understand it even better. Um, it, it's for people whose primary driver is curiosity and the truth, realizing that you don't have the truth is a huge blow, especially when you've been very confident your whole life that you have the truth with a capital T. Suddenly realizing that not only do you not have it, most of the things that you've been told were true, or in fact, turns out nearly all of them are in fact not true, either completely false, as in you can bring up evidence or logical contradictions to show that they are falsified and cannot possibly be true, or just not true in the sense of it's an assertion, but you have no way to back it up and therefore have no reason to treat it as true. I do like making this philosophical distinction because, for example, the general concept of a God, well, it's not true. You can't show that there is a God, but you also can't show that there is definitely no God. On the other hand, right. you can say that the idea of the exodus from, is from Egypt of 2 million uh, ancestors of the Israelites, well, that's false. We can go and look for the evidence. We know what we should find. We can look at history. We can say that definitely didn't happen as described in the Bible. So that's false. And that's um, 
that you know that that's the distinction I like to make there. With you know rage learning, I've learned enough about evolution and a few other topics like geology, cosmology, and especially philosophy, actually, that I now am at least a moderate expert in some of these things and can discuss it at an advanced level with people who have actual doctorates or postdocs in the field without feeling too embarrassed about my lack of knowledge. Um, I, I don't want to break too much. Again, this is just how I'm built. I have a good memory and I like to learn. So it's what I do. Um, yeah. The reason I mentioned philosophy here is because realizing that so many of these things I'd been raised with weren't true, well, it made me realize, okay, what is true? How do I know what's true? Right? Because if just having something written in the Bible is not a good enough reason to think it's true, what is a good enough reason? And so this got me looking into, this is actually where I started looking into apologetics. What do the apologists actually say to support their case? Maybe I'm just missing something and there are good reasons to believe in a God. Again, my active belief disappeared just about overnight, but I wasn't ready to give up on the whole thing. I'd been told for a long time that this was true and only, and the only way to really be good was to be a Christian. So I didn't want to just give that up. So I started looking, I listened to the apologists. I looked at what they said. I studied philosophy to see if their arguments held weight and well, to cut a long story short, they don't. Um, the professional apologists of the world Honestly, I don't know how they do it because their arguments are transparently bad, even to a fifth grader. I know because I've tested it on my fifth grader and he can see right through them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, do you think that the um, this version of Christianity, that, to, to I guess to make the point super clear, because I don't know what kind of audience we're going to have for this, <clears throat> I, I define Western Christianity and Orthodox Christianity as very different things. You know what? Whatever Jesus was teaching is very hard to find in the Western Church today. Um, and I'll I'll even go so far as to say, and this this will become very apparent to those who listen to this show, um, that the the things that Jesus was teaching, I think, were ultimately pretty good. I think he was trying to teach people to be good to their neighbors, to love their neighbors, you know, truly, and to uh, be even sacrificial toward how you you treat people and and approach the world. Those are good things, I believe. Um, do you think that this Western version, this fundamentalist version that you and I kind of grew up with, makes it a lot easier or more likely even that we throw the baby out with the bathwater? I don't think there's a baby. Because I did. I certainly did. I, I, right. I think yeah. um, that to the extent an idea attributed to Jesus, because I don't want to say that he actually said it, all we have are the gospel accounts, which were written decades, possibly even a century after Jesus lived yeah. and were written expressly to make him sound like someone worth following. Of the things attributed to him in the gospels, the ones that are actually good ideas, like you mentioned, caring about your neighbor, sometimes at the expense of yourself, of showing kindness, even when it's not deserved, those are decent ideas, but they are hardly original or unique to Jesus. Uh, they were already yeah, espoused by other philosophers and religions or at the same time and prior to him, to the extent that an idea is good, true, and helpful, it's not original or unique to Jesus or more generally Christianity. And to the extent that an idea is original or unique to Jesus or Christianity, it's not that good, true, or helpful. Um, so at least to me, there really isn't a baby there to lose. Um, there's the common values that you see across many different 
religious and moral systems. And those can be gleaned from any source that happens to espouse them or just common sense if you start with certain moral goals, such as the happiness, health, and longevity of humankind. You can work out a lot of these things without having to get them from a teacher. And while I certainly admire the Christians who do focus on those common values that are espoused in Christianity, I do take issue with them treating them as quote unquote Christian values as opposed to shared values that are incorporated into their particular practice of Christianity. And this this is what kept me in for so long though, was was that idea that these things are good and the only place to find this goodness is in Christianity. It took me a long time, but eventually I realized, no, I can be good. In fact, I can be better by not having a set of rules and instead having a set of goals. If you will allow me a bit of philosophical meandering here, I have come to see morality as something akin to math. It is an axiomatic construct where we take certain things as granted without necessarily being able to prove them. Um, If you are familiar with mathematics, we have this idea of numbers. Well, numbers don't really exist. We just talk about them. And this is an axiom of numbers. We will use these words to describe these quantities and these operations to describe how we want to relate them to each other. That's math. Well, morality is the same way. We have these goals. I like the happiness, health, and longevity of human beings and the harm reduction to them. Well, those are nice. There's nothing that I can point to in the universe that says, this is what I must do but I'm going to do it anyway, because this is what I want. And this is what I think most other humans share with me, that we also all want these things. And from there, we can then work out the consequences of them, just like we can with mathematics and mathematical proofs. We can say, all right, if this is our goal, do these actions or these attitudes further or hinder these goals. And so Christianity, Stoicism, Buddhism, lots of different religions and ethical systems have incorporated some or all of these ideas, but none of them can lay exclusive claim to them, which is what I have found to be very freeing in helping me actually be a better person is not being bound by rules where, you know, oh, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the first one is a bit uh, dicey. The second one's not bad, but how about I just work for my goals and see, hey, does treating my neighbor as equal in value to myself work? Hey, great. Yes, it does. Then we can keep going with that as a goal. So that's my uh, musing on morality from someone who definitely does not have a PhD in moral philosophy. Okay. <laughs> um, well, you've kind of already described really what you, how you approach the world post deconstruction. Is there anything you would add to that? Because uh, my, my third question is, how would you describe your beliefs post-deconstruction? You've kind of already done that, but is there anything to add? Yeah. Um, post-deconstruction, I've actually been able to gain a lot more clarity in how I view and interact with the world. And it's helped me to make better, kinder, wiser decisions. Um, instead of – so rather than following a set of rules or treating a certain set of ideas as unquestionable, where – When I grew up, I could not say things like, oh, I'm good because only God is good. I couldn't say that I've done a great job. I could say I'd done a great job with the help of God. Um, I had no ownership of myself and no ability to credit myself or others appropriately for actions and their consequences. Or, Or to take appropriate blame, too. If I sinned, well, that was 
the flesh taking over or that was being tempted by the devil. It wasn't, I made a decision either because it was a poor decision or because I just did something that was against the many, many rules that are espoused in the Bible, which honestly has no particular moral um, impact as compared to those shared moral values that I mentioned earlier. Uh, My go-to example for this is my go-to example on this is uh, when I was, I believe 23 or 24, uh, I was at a party with some friends and I had never once let anything like what's considered a swear word cross my lips. Wow. I said ass. And for years afterwards, I felt guilty and torn up over this one word that had escaped my lips because I had defined myself up to that point as someone who did not swear. I was defined by what I did not do. I was defined by these rules where thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And saying ass was using a, a rude word for part of the human body. And the human body was made in the image of God. Therefore, I was taking the name of God in vain. And that was... Akin to murder. Yeah. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain, right? To finish out the command. Right. Well, at the same time, I was perfectly okay with the death penalty. Actual killing. Wow. Because, you know, the government does not bear the sword for nothing. Again, if you're wondering these things when I sound a little bit different, I'm quoting the Bible directly. Um, yeah. so it was perfectly okay. Do, do you, do st- oh, I do not. Do you find yourself still, still doing that all the time? Quoting the Bible, uh, just in regular conversation. Cause I, I oh, yeah. Constantly. When I'm, especially when I'm right now exposing its problems. Um, because right. a lot of times Christians will look at the, someone who deconverts. If we go on a tangent here, edit this out if you want to, they'll look yeah. at someone who deconverts and say, oh, you never really understood the faith. Well, there's a good chance I understand yeah, sit it. Down. Sit down, let yeah, me tell there's you. There's a good chance I understand it better than the person talking to me. Not always. Sometimes yeah. there are people with actual degrees in theology who understand the history and translation and theological matters better than I do. Although that is sort of like having a degree in Lord of the Rings. It's interesting, but yeah. it doesn't have any reference to the real world other than the books. Yeah. So... Um, <laughs> And let's face it, Lord of the Rings is much more interesting than the Bible. <laughs> Depends on who you ask. I still, I still love reading the Bible. I still find a lot of fascinating shit in it. However, I view it as people trying to explain stuff that they don't understand. And that has changed fundamentally how I feel about it. If I don't take it as like the absolute truth and it must be the truth, instead it's how this person who is writing it is trying to understand what he's experiencing. That's a different thing. Uh, And it feels much different. Some parts of it can be more interesting that way. However, when you get to things like long lists of genealogies, names of places, the amounts of sacrifices, or you're not enamored with that stuff. It's not fun. (laughs) The history of this King, he fought these wars. He served Yahweh or did not serve Yahweh. And he died. And the next King reigned in his place. It's not exactly relevant to today's interests. It's not even no, that relevant no. to the interest back then because it was just their version of history, which even then, even those little short paragraphs of a king who reigned for 15 years and died, it's still propaganda because they're often ignoring, for example, defeats that yeah. this king had, poor decisions this king made, because every king was always the best in his own mind, and that's how the chroniclers recorded it. Um, 
Yeah, I I try to approach the Bible as best I can, and this is practically impossible, but through the the lens of the person writing it at the time or whoever was writing that particular piece. Um, and it does open it up to me a lot differently. Doesn't doesn't make it any more or less true, but it is an example of how someone can try to explain truth in the way that they see it or the way that they understand it and convey it to other people. Mm-hmm. I from that perspective, I find a lot of value in the Bible. Um, but I also find that same value in the Quran or the even the Book of Mormon, which I you know, which is sillier in its own way, has kind of a it's a little more fantastical coming from uh, the fundamentalist and it's, it's not well, as well that I either. did. No, not even close. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I just I find all all the way I approach any holy book now, any book that claims to be holy at least, is what are they trying to convey? Who are they trying to convey it to? And when what period, what what was the surrounding like? What was that what was that place? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it it changes it for me a lot. I find a lot more value. That in is it. interesting. Uh, I have found that a little bit. Uh, my kids, some of them have actually asked to read the Bible with me since I don't think it's that important anymore. Or let me rephrase. I don't think yeah. it is the word of God anymore. But you're right. There is some interest right. to be found there. Uh, I've been going through Genesis with my daughter, who's now eight. And looking at it without having to think, oh, it's all true. It's all relevant. We can see, well, clearly... You have someone trying to merge the proto-histories of at least three different people groups together here. And that's where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob come right. from, for example. That's why, for example, there's a lot of overlap in the stories between them. Clearly, they both had some similar cultural narratives, but they each centered around their own preferred patriarch of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. And the primary things that they were concerned with are ancestors, descendants, and land. Everything is always about ancestors, descendants, and land in that book. And it makes it somewhat more interesting. We can all we can look at it through that thematic lens. Like, why are we why do we care that Abraham's servants quarreled about a well? Well, obviously this is because they wanted to have written down, see, our ancestors had this well and right. yours didn't. So take that. Right. Um because otherwise it's stupidly boring. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry. That's okay. So, but back to the main question of why do what do I, how to look at things now? Well, as I've just been talking about, I don't see the Bible as the Word of God. I am free to read it or not as I see fit. I don't when I read it. I don't have to treat it as important. Sometimes it's just dumb, and that's okay. Sometimes I can actually laugh yeah. at it. The saga of Jacob and his wives and kids is clearly like an early attempt at a soap opera or something similar. It, yeah, It's probably supposed to be <laughs> funny. It's okay yeah. to laugh. Um, and, you know, when I was growing up, we could never laugh at the Bible. How dare we? But there's actual right. humor to be found in there. Um, but more generally, I try to look at the world as I'm a meat machine. I am a fortunate animal able to recognize its surroundings and think about the future. That's amazing. That's awesome. But because of those 4 billion years of evolution, I've got a lot of shit to work through before I can get an accurate picture of the actual world around me. Sure, if I look outside, the earth looks flat, but it's not flat. If I look outside, the sun goes around the earth, but it doesn't. And understanding these things, the what I think of as the philosophy of science, or not just I think of, it's a whole discipline that I've also spent a lot of time studying. The philosophy of science helps me really ground myself in this is what's real. This is what might be real. This is what's definitely not real. 
And by making decisions based on the things that I can say with great confidence are in fact real, I can make better decisions. This is part of why I care so much about the truth and why I want to share my story. I want other people to realize the value of living according to things that are, as far as we can tell, actually demonstrably true. There are ideas that might be fun. Some people like the idea of heaven. I never did, but those might be fun. But living according to that, well, you've heard the old phrase, so spiritual minded that they're no earthly good. Or sorry, let me rephrase. You've heard the old phrase, so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Well, it's a phrase for a reason. If you're always worried about something that you can't show to be true, you don't ever know if you've achieved it. And so you're going to spend all your effort on things that, as far as I can tell, are definitely not true. But even if they are true, you have no way of knowing it. I would rather spend my effort in the life that I know I have, that I know I can enjoy, and then get as much enjoyment out of it as I can. It's honestly, without hyperbole, I can say that I am happier, healthier, and more moral than I ever was or could have been as a Christian, given these strictures of Christianity. Um, I can take care of myself without feeling like I am doing something that is only of little profit, as it says in, I believe, 1 Timothy. Uh, I can do kindness to other people without worrying that, oh no, I might be accidentally condoning sin. For example, if I say hello to someone who is gay, um, I can just be happy with my life instead of worrying about sin in my own life because sin is just an imaginary construct. It's doing something that God doesn't like. It has at most incidental overlap with morality, at least morality as I've defined it earlier in this conversation. And as a consequence, without having to worry so much about whether or not my actions are sin, I can do more real good for real people in the here and now. And it feels great. Uh, One other thing I would, one of the things that was a big impact on me and I haven't really talked about it yet was purity culture. Do we want to go into that or just keep it at this level right now? Uh, We can. Yeah, we can. We can go into that. That's, it's certainly a big part of my uh, upbringing too. So I was a virgin whenever I was married. um, And that decision that I made when I was probably 13 or 14, you know, still impacts my life today mm-hmm. in a negative way. Yeah. So I certainly okay. so, yeah, we'll, understand. When we yeah, come back in, why don't you ask it. that as a question and I can respond to it better. Uh, I'm just marking these with the clips so you can just go right okay. into it and I'll ed- either edit it out or if it flows well enough, I'll just leave it in. Yeah. So as far as actual actions in my life, I do actually want to back up the timeline a bit because one of the other big things that impacted me was what's come to be known as purity culture. The idea that sexual activity outside of a cisgender male and cisgender female in legally recognized matrimony is, again, as with saying ass, tantamount to murder. Uh, about as great a sin as one could possibly commit. And realistically, the way it's treated... <laughs> by many evangelicals, the worst sin one could possibly commit. Anything that they deem as sexual sin, because it's much more common than actual murder, is treated as just about the worst thing anyone could do. Now, many people, they hear these messages and they trust their own feelings a bit more than I did. And they say, I don't care. I'm going to have sex anyway. And they do. Now, some of them feel guilty over it. Some of them don't. But they have no problem engaging in sexual activity. However, they also got a bit of sex ed. (laughs) 
Um, right. I was homeschooled, as previously mentioned, and the extent of my sex ed was a single, awkward, incredibly awkward conversation on my 11th birthday, uh, in which oh my father explained the absolute bare minimum of the anatomy. Uh, if you will excuse sounding a bit vulgar, the his speech to me was almost exactly, sometimes your penis gets hard. When it does, you can stick it into your wife's <laughs> vagina. That's it. That was the wow. entire conversation of my sex ed. Um, a few years later, Oof. I was given a book published by Focus on the Family of All Places that actually had a little bit more good information. But by that point, damage was done. I had already gotten the idea from the amount of negative language used around sexuality before age 11 that sex itself was a bad thing. Um, when asked, you know, do you know what it means when it says that Adam knew his wife Eve? I said, yes, they committed sex. That was the language I used twice. Wow. Yes. Despite being corrected on it once, I did it again later because that was the only language I knew around the topic. And I didn't know anything about what sex was. I had no idea. All I knew is that it was some terrible thing that people would sometimes have to do if they were married. Well, once I found out, yeah, I don't, I don't know how, how are we expected? Cause I grew up with the same mindset, even though I did get sex ed and my mom was not a fundamentalist at all. Um, she was a single parent, had a very positive attitude about sex, but it, this was self-imposed because of my church that I chose to go to, that sex was this dangerous, awful thing. How are we supposed to trend to just get married one day and suddenly sex is positive again? It, it's so damaging. To, it, it really is. Uh, especially a young marriage. It's very damaging. Yeah. To it. Well, I, I, I have some theories on that, that, that I have worked through. <laughs> by, with, yeah. with personal firsthand experience so yeah um yeah so you know i had this idea that it was just the worst thing well i also had this idea that certain parts of my body were evil and contaminated and not to be trusted uh because you know if i were to so much as say penis outside of the context of learning about health well i would get my mouth literally washed with soap um wow. so i knew that there were bad parts of my body um, and also, obviously, you have to wash your hands every time you use every time you touch them when you use the bathroom. So, you know, again, since there was no counter information given, this is all I could build up in my head of, you know, these are bad parts of my body. And of course, circumcision, right? Some of it's got to come off. It's just that bad. Um, and so then on my 11th birthday, I found out that it was even worse than I had possibly imagined sex to be. That not only was it, you know bad in and of itself, but it involved the worst parts of you doing the worst possible thing. Because I didn't know, for example, that a vagina and urethra are different things. I assumed it would be trying to like fit a carrot in a drinking straw and thus excruciating for the woman. Yeah. Wow. So um, I couldn't imagine why anyone would do this on purpose, let alone be tempted to do it. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I'd also, of course, heard the idea that uh, as seen in Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, they find that they are naked and ashamed. And even though pr prior to that, they were naked and not ashamed, it explicitly says that since we are quote unquote descended from Adam and Eve and have their same foibles. Well, nudity therefore is automatically shameful. Uh, my parents made it very clear that there was never an appropriate case for nudity in art, for example, um, or as I took it by extension around other people, um, you know, 
if you're wondering, no, I did not watch an R-rated movie without feeling tainted until I was 36. Um, I didn't oh, watch wow. a PG-13 movie until how, I was 17. How old are you I am now? 39. Okay. We're close. I'm 37. Yeah. Or 37 in a um, few months. But. It, yeah, the movie was... I'd watched a few before that. Uh, never any with nudity, um, because that would have just been too much. Um, but, yeah. So, I knew... I, the only thing I knew about sex was that it was bad and then that it was even worse than I'd imagined because it was disgusting, excruciating. Uh, the way I try to analogize it is imagine if you'd heard that from time to time for reasons that you cannot comprehend, people will sometimes sit down, read Mein Kampf out loud all while um, eating feces laced with glass. So stupid, disgusting, yeah. painful, evil, all at the same time. I, I couldn't, it was just yeah. utterly incomprehensible to me. And you know, despite not then giving me any more information on it, I think my parents just assumed that I was a quote unquote typical teenager and that I would grow into being super horny and that they had to really emphasize just how much I shouldn't do sexual activities because yes, they, they were following the boomer playbook that high school is the time when everyone becomes like horny and stupid. Well, I was neither of those things. Um, <laughs> Um, I, you know, I'm not sure how much of this is innate and how much of it was inculcated based on this bad information, but I was effectively asexual. Um, I had no interest in sexual activity. I did have some interest in the female form and I had a lot of interest in romance. Um, and so sometimes I would, you know, even though I felt guilty about it, I would look at pictures of naked women, but never anything involving intercourse, never anything involving, um, a naked man because I was, deeply ashamed of the fact that I had a male body. Um, not in the gender dysphoria sense, in the sexuality dysphoria sense, that I was ashamed of the fact that I had sexual parts at all. Um, gotcha. it, it's difficult to explain, but I, I try to describe it as the inherent shame as opposed to shame of behavior. Um, I, I was... Again, not intentionally. And again, I want to stress my parents were not trying to be malicious with this. They were just embarrassed to talk about sex. And because I was homeschooled, I had no other outlet for it. So, and since, of course, I was afraid of talking to them about it in case I got more information about sex, I didn't. (laughs) And actively avoided learning anything about it for a long time. So, I mean, this sort of stood me in good stead in purity culture, right? I was definitely not going to be tempted... To have sex outside of marriage. Um, this became a problem, though, when, because of my strong interest in romance, I eventually got engaged to the woman who is now my wife. On, I know, feel free to reach through the speaker and slap me for this. On Valentine's Day, I told her, this was about two months after we had gotten engaged, you know, I'm just not that interested in sex. It doesn't really seem all that interesting or exciting to me. <laughs> I, How has that changed? We'll get to there. Um, I had assumed that based on the pop culture that I had seen and the ideas about gender roles that had been inculcated in me by evangelicalism, that women were generally at best not interested in sex and generally repulsed by the idea and that it was only something they they did because they felt like they had to. This is not true for anyone listening. This is definitely not true. Women have sex drives too. I did not have a sex drive at the time and didn't understand why this might be um, <laughs> a problem. 
Now, she would have ever, ever have had every I cut rephrase. She would have had every right to <laughs> dump me then and there, and I am very glad she didn't. Fortunately, this is maybe my first time of rage learning. I decided to start learning about sex for real. I finally asked my mom what a period was. I started reading a bunch of books. Unfortunately, most of them written from a Christian perspective, but hey, at least they were better than nothing about what sex is. Unfortunately, none of them really addressed the question of what if you don't like the idea of sex? Apparently, it's such a an unusual thing that especially in the mid-2000s when this was happening, this was around 2009, if you're wondering, nobody had written about this. There, there weren't books on asexuality. There weren't books on sexuality as more of a spectrum, at least not accessible, especially not to a Christian audience. Um, now, I want to be clear. There are many people who are definitely asexual. They just have no interest in sex, and that's just how they are wired. I'm not one of those people. I was inculcated into this idea, or at least it certainly meshed with the proclivities I had at the time. And one other thing that's important yeah. to understand is that sexuality is fluid over, over your lifespan. Things that are interest you at one time may not interest you at a later time, or things that didn't interest you at one point may interest you later. Uh, and these, you know, I, I'm clearly a good example of this because by the time we got married, I was still a bit nervous. Um, I still felt kind of bad because I had read about sexual things that weren't directly involving um, my now wife. Uh, I had this idea that basically having any sexual thoughts that didn't directly involve her was like cheating on her uh, because uh, again, to quote the Bible, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her in his heart. So this is part of why I had such a hard time learning about sex because it would involve sexual thoughts and Christianity is big into punishing thought crime, or at least warning against it. So I, I had no framework for learning about this either. Um, but on our honeymoon, um, once sexual activity actually started, it's like a switch went on in my brain and I realized, oh, this is A, enjoyable, and B, it's okay that I enjoy it. My relationship with pleasure was another thing that was very fraught. Don't need to get into it much, but basically I'd been given this idea that pleasure was not good um, because right. it same. was, Big yeah, same. it detracted from one's interest in spiritual matters. So since it was of the flesh and it wasn't of the spirit, pleasure was to be denigrated uh, at best. Um, but yeah, uh, we managed to not just have sex, we had good sex. Um, yeah. Uh, right from the get-go, our sex life was pretty great, and it. Right, I, I was not that lucky. Oh, well. so. I, I, I certainly feel for you, and I can definitely understand where you were coming from. Um, I, yeah, it took a while. <laughs> fortunately, both my wife and I are very analytical thinkers, so you know I knew all the right answers at least by cognition. I, I didn't feel them deeply until. As I said, sexual activity actually started and suddenly I could actually connect my knowledge with my feelings. Um, and yeah, fortunately that is, that is how I work. Not everyone works that way and I wouldn't dare to presume to tell others that their experiences weren't, weren't the same or were not valid just because they experienced things differently. Um, yeah. 
it worked for me and you know, I'm very grateful to my wife for sticking it out with me. And interestingly, after I started learning about evolution, things got better after that. Uh, because instead of seeing myself as the way I put it, a ghost piloting a meat machine, I am a meat machine. I am an animal with animal urges and animal functions. And by embracing that, to serve a purpose, yeah, too. by embracing that, and th- those functions serve a purpose. Right. Uh, by realizing, hey, the reason sex is fun is because my ancestors who thought sex was the most fun had the most sex, and therefore had the most descendants. And I right. am their descendant, so it's quite normal for me to enjoy this, and I don't have to feel bad for doing so. And you know, again, like I said, things got better. When things really got better was when we deconverted because suddenly you don't have an invisible judgmental non-participatory third partner who is really of course just your mind but with jesus out of the bedroom things got a whole lot better after that not going to go into a lot of detail y'all don't need to hear about that but um suffice it to say (laughs) uh i am also not the only one who reports a better sex life post deconversion uh there's yeah it's a very common experience to realize once you don't have those restraints, even if all your activities are the same without someone judging you for them all the time, AKA part of your mind, they're just more fun. Yeah. In my case, my deconstruction started about six months prior to my marriage. Hmm. Um, and that had a massive impact on, I, I became incredibly suicidal. I, I had, just became nothing but a depressed sack of meat that didn't understand why God didn't exist for me and why God would not give me faith back, why I couldn't have it back. So it, it was a totally different experience. It sounds like you were pretty lucky, and that's a that's a testament to you and your wife and your ability to talk through things. And it really like is. Figure it out, which I, I think is what you're supposed to do. You know, that's what marriage is about, is talking it out, figuring it mm-hmm. out together. Um, it's a lot easier with two people doing that. And at the time, I was not uh, a person capable of figuring it out. So it took me quite a few years to really, I mean, I was in deconstruction, I would say, for two years. And um, it was long after that before I really figured it out. Yeah. So And got to where I didn't feel guilty for even thinking about sexuality at all. Yeah, it, it took a while. And yeah, deconverting got me the rest of the way over it. Like I said, things had gotten better up to that point. Yeah. And deconverting, it allowed us to ask all the questions we'd never asked. Like, am I straight? Yeah. Yes, as far as I can tell. Um, uh, you know, do we want monogamy? Do we, what does that even mean? What does fidelity and fidelity mean? All these things that really should be <laughs> asked at every relationship. Um, we hadn't asked because the answers had been given to us. Once we were able to explore the answers on our own, we can come to even more satisfactory conclusions and recognize that these might change over time and right. be ready and willing to embrace that change as opposed to fearing it. It, you know, Yes, I'm sure many Christians listening to this will say that we're just trying to suppress the truth and unrighteousness because we want to sin. Well, I haven't told you anything that we've done that's sinful. Think what you will if you want. But for me the quote unquote sin came after the recognition that sin isn't a problem. Um, there was nothing about again, quote unquote sin that I found tempting. As I mentioned earlier, 
I felt guilty for years just for uttering a single word because it was sinful and I didn't want to sin. Um, if I, if you want to take away one thing from this about my life post deconversion is that it is a life free from sin. My decisions are my own, whether those have good or bad consequences, I can take credit or blame as appropriate. And ultimately the judge of those actions and their consequences is me and the people I affect. Yeah. That's very humanistic and reasonable. And it's also a little bit biblical because Jesus told the woman at the well to go and sin no more. And I mean, in certain ways, you can see it as, well, I'm not sinning anymore because there's no one to sin against except for the people next mm -hmm. to me, the people that I'm in, involved in relationship with. Um, what I'm, I'm going to move on because we're getting close to an hour. Yep. Was there, when you kind of went through this, this, you know, this kind of all kind of came to a head about a year and a half ago, you mm -hmm. said, um, was there any fallout in your relationships, work, anything like that, that uh, I guess you could kind of give as a warning to others. Yeah. Um, I'm actually fairly pleased with how we handled things. The reason I finally had the conversation with her is I'd realized probably back in 2018 that I didn't really believe anymore. And by the end of 2020, I had really gotten comfortable with thinking of myself as an atheist. Um, and as you probably, many people listening are probably aware in-person church services stopped in early 2020 and having this break from going to church on a weekly basis really helped us gather our thoughts and re-examine our lives and see, Hey, do we still want to be a part of this? And I was very firmly on the side of no, but I also didn't want to, mess up the lives of my wife and kids. And so I was trying to figure out a way to bring this up to them without being judgmental and without breaking our relationships. Cause I didn't really know quite where they stood. And fortunately a friend of mine who used to lead Bible study kind of forced the issue. Uh, he asked me through Facebook messenger, Hey, where do you stand in matters of faith these days? And I didn't want to answer him until I had had the conversation with my wife. And so I did that night, June 29th, 2021, um, I asked, Hey, I, my friend asked me if I have any faith left and I don't, how do you feel? And I was to say, I was relieved when she responded would be the understatement of the century. Um, she's like, yeah, I don't either. And I've been trying to find a way to tell you about it too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, um, that's funny. I have a very similar Yeah, story. It, it was, it was just a. It was the most incredibly freeing feeling, very akin, I think, to what people who convert to a religion often describe as this euphoria when they first convert, where suddenly everything about their lives makes sense. And while I don't think religion actually makes sense, to many people it clearly does. And especially when you first take on that identity and feel like everything has clicked, it's a wonderful feeling. And while I never felt what Christians call the joy of your salvation, I certainly felt the joy of leaving it behind. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, for me, you, know, you mentioned you felt, you felt worried that God didn't care about you. I was incredibly relieved to let go of the idea of God. My 
picture of God had never been a loving one. Um, I think I liked the book of Job too much, but. <laughs> wow. Okay. See, my, my God was very, but also I really had a hard time making that God make sense with both the Christianity I saw in my life every day around me. Um, and, you know, like you mentioned the death penalty, that's how do you make that work? How do you, how do you make any of that work? Or, um, I had a hard time with the concept of God is anything but perfect and loving. And even in his anger, it was righteous. Mm -hmm. You know, even, even when God was at odds with me, I felt like he had to be in the right, not me. So yeah, there are all sorts of mental gymnastics we do. Uh, so um, that I, I find it's, it's funny that you had a friend kind of ask you. Mm -hmm. And then for me, it was, I had, I was at a party. I had kind of, I disconnected from the church for a few years. And then someone knew that I had been ordained uh, that I didn't know it was a stranger to me, but he wanted to ask some questions about God and the Bible. Hmm. And I, for the first time in my life, I had to tell someone, I don't know. And it just kind of flooded me with this. I wouldn't say comfort with the idea, but at least an acknowledgement of the idea that I'm not certain anymore. And I used to be, and I, can either embrace that uncertainty and go with it, see where it takes me, or like shy away from it, and, you know, be afraid of it, like, which is what I had already been doing for years. Um, I, I find that it's funny. And also my wife at the time, we had a very similar conversation. We were sitting in the bathtub, maybe two years or around our two year anniversary. And I just said, I don't think I believe anymore. And she said, yeah, I feel you. I'm, I'm in the same boat. And that was, it was one really good for our relationship. It made our marriage better. It made us understand one another better. And we, you know, eventually got divorced and in the end for the best, I think, I think we're both mutually happy uh, with that decision. But that was one of the, the bonds that held us together for a long time is this transformation out of faith. So I, it's very funny. It's very similar, um, set of circumstances there. Yeah, I didn't expect it that. Is. Uh, you know, I've talked to many people online uh, and we're in some of the same online groups where we've all seen this happen where one person deconverts or deconstructs and their spouse or partner does not. And it can cause a lot of tension between them. Uh, sometimes leading to the end yeah. of the relationship, other times just leading to a, a significantly reduced intimacy sometimes just to a bit of confusion between them where they just don't quite understand each other anymore. Um, and some of them still manage to make it work. And, you know, as long as everyone is doing their best and, you know, and is as happy as possible with the relationship, I'd say that's a success. Sometimes that means, you know, going different ways. Sometimes it means sticking together and working things out. Sometimes it means just not having certain topics of conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> So yeah, it was, uh, like I said, the biggest relief in my life to find out that she was on the same page. We told our kids about a week later and, um, they were generally relieved as well. Like, oh, okay. That makes sense for the oldest one. The middle one was a little bit 
worried she'd always had the most theological questions. Uh, when we explained to her that the answers we've been giving her were just the ones that we've been told and that we didn't actually think they were correct anymore, she quickly got over it. The youngest one was too young to really have much of an opinion on it. She felt a little nervous at first, but now she's pretty happy with the idea that at least her parents don't believe we don't really press her on where she stands these days. She is after all only six. Um, right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so because my parents are involved full-time in ministry, as mentioned before, they're missionaries. And since 1989, they've been essentially parishioners working in and for a small church. Um, we knew that it was going to get to them eventually if we didn't get out ahead of it. So we actually wrote a letter uh, and sent it in the mail in a paper envelope, uh, letting them know that our stance had changed, that we no longer believed, and uh, that we still cared much about them. And that it was in part due to the fact that they'd raised us to value the truth. Uh, we sent these to both our sets of parents who are both Christians still. And it went fairly well. We've maintained a cordial relationship with them. Yes, they are grieved. Um, not much I can do about that. Yeah. Um, I think they're wrong. And I am not going to participate in religious observance with them anymore. And it's better that they understand why than that I just kind of mysteriously fade away from them. Um, yeah, I have, you know, had much less contact with a lot of my Christian friends since then. Um, that is unfortunate, but again, if you're at different places in your life, sometimes you don't have much of a relationship basis anymore. Uh, on the other hand, I've also, I say, I, my wife and I together have also been able to form a really good online community with many people. Uh, in various post-Christian groups. Uh, again, you and I are part of some of them together. And uh, it has been a real lifesaver. We've made new friends online and in person because of this um, and are generally happier with our lives now than we ever were while we were still practicing Christians. Uh, again, not everyone's going to have it so smoothly. Sometimes you know your spouse doesn't isn't on the same page. Sometimes your kids aren't on the same page. Sometimes your parents will keep hammering you with doctrine thinking that it'll somehow change your views sometimes you'll have people not just fade away but actively cut you off angry that you no longer believe the same things they do um we haven't had any of those really negative reactions and so we're very glad for that but i also want to recognize that not everyone has the same experience and being in these no yeah i had a lot of negative reactions yeah, being in these online so i had to deal with people visiting and just showing up at the house to to try to to fix me and stuff like that and i couldn't go to town yeah. without someone stopping me it, wanting to talk in fact it. to his credit um the pastor of our old church uh when when he heard about it we sent him a similar letter to what we'd sent to our parents although that one was just email uh he asked to meet with us and just talk about it with us for a couple hours we actually had a very interesting, productive conversation. Yeah. Um, he was not trying to hammer us with doctrine. He wanted to find out why we think the way we do. Think of it as an exit interview from the church, if you will. Um, and I still maintain a lot of respect for him to this day. Good. I, I'll ask the last question and we can wrap Sounds it good. up. You've kind of touched on this a lot. How has your view of yourself and your view of humanity changed since... Um, I used to think that humanity was basically evil and sinful and destined for hell apart from the good news of Jesus Christ. I don't think that anymore. I used to think the same thing of myself. I wouldn't necessarily 
side with people who say that humans are basically good or that they're basically bad. Humans are basically animals. We are primates. We have primate behaviors. If we have certain goals like the uh, building of a society in which people have more opportunity for happiness, health, and longevity, then we can work toward those goals and assess our morality accordingly. Obviously, throughout history, there have been people who do not share those goals, and we now look at them as the villains of history. I think we're seeing some of those people in governments around the world getting a bit of power these days, and it, it is concerning to me. But you know, rather than try to view people as good or evil, I view them as human. And we are, you know, like it or not, we're primates. Inside all of us is a, you know, is there's still a monkey, there's still a lizard, there's still a fish. Um, we view yeah. the world in those ways. And knowing that, like I said, it's actually very freeing. It helps me make better decisions based on my actual goals rather than based on things that I've just been told. So, you know, embrace your inner monkey. Um, don't be, be too hard on yourself when you act like one, but, you know, try to act like you want other humans to act as well. I think you'll find that moral decisions can be made with greater clarity and with greater effectiveness because of that. All right. Amen. Uh, very good. Um, I'll give you an opportunity to kind of, you said you had a couple of things you wanted to promote and talk about. So I'll give you an opportunity to share those groups. Uh, yeah. Um, one of the groups that I found very helpful as I was uh, trying to understand uh, evolution and other branches of science that had been denied to me as a young earth creationist, I joined and now help administrate the group Answers to Answers in Genesis on Facebook. It is a faith-friendly and friendly faith group. So we don't disparage people with faith, and we don't allow people without with faith to disparage those without. Um, if people go there looking to enhance their faith, we consider that a success, um, because at least then they have a better understanding of the real world in which they live. Um, I also was able to share my understanding of evolutionary theory, as well as a few other scientific topics, on a, the podcast called Musings of an ADD Mind, uh, with... Oh, yes, with our, with our friend Jack Robertson. Um, he's had... Oh, no, that's a different podcast. It's a different oh, friend. Oh, okay. Then. I have another friend with an AD, uh, called ADD Masterminds, ah. so very similar name. Got him confused. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll show the links to that. We've had four Science with Lars episodes so far. The most recent one just dropped today as of this recording. Okay. And um, it's where I get to share my thoughts on science and the philosophy of science, which are two things that were very instrumental in helping me leave faith behind as I found a better way of looking at the world. So uh, finally, there's also the Deconvergent Anonymous group where uh, you and I are both members. Uh, it is associated with the Graceful Atheist podcast where uh, my wife and I shared our story before uh, with you know a bit of a different focus than we've had today. Um, and uh, it's been a great place to find community and support for those uh, leaving or already who, who have already left their faith behind. Yeah, I highly recommend that show. Uh, I haven't heard the other one, so I don't, I can't say that. But uh, the Graceful Atheist is is really good. It's um, a kind and loving approach, uh, which it, you probably didn't experience as much of the new atheist movement as I did because I I left the faith so much earlier. You know. Yeah, I, I experienced um, it in retrospect. That, there was a lot of. Yeah, it there was a lot of toxicity there, uh, and 
unsavory characters at times and sometimes just wonderful people, but um, it's the graceful atheist is everything that that is not. And I, I really appreciate what David has done there. And the group is just fantastic. So I, I have really enjoyed uh, getting to know the people there and I would recommend, you know, listen to that and join the group. A lot of, a lot of good folks there. Yeah. All right. Well, you'll find someone who has been through what you've been through. Yes, indeed. And that will help tremendously. Tremendously. Well, Lars, I appreciate it. I, I think this was a fantastic interview. Thank you're you. really, you're, you're good at answering questions and, and just talking and, you know, you're, you're great at it. Uh, so I'm glad to have you. And I don't know if I'll make yours the first episode I publish. I think I'm going to do one about myself first to kind of introduce myself to people. Um, and then you'll probably be number two sometime in the new year. All so right. Sounds good. I appreciate it more than you can know. Any final words? Uh, no, just thanks for having me on. Glad to be your first guest.